I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. I hear you've been thinking about databases. A little bit. I have some ideas about databases. So, when you mean database, you mean like... SQL databases, like yeah. server databases, right? Yeah, As opposed Postgres, to like the more colloquial... MySQL, you know, Oracle, if anyone still uses that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm pretty sure someone's still using There's Oracle. There's got to be at least one or two people. Oracle seems like they have money, so there has to be yeah. someone somewhere what, what that's using Oracle. What about SQLite? Does that fit into your general pantheon of data buy? Uh, that is the plural th- database, I'm sure. Yes, but in a more interesting way. Oh, Okay. Um, but yes, it does. So what's your beef with databases? I don't... Because so I'm assuming it's a beef, because I, I <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't have mentioned it. I have a minor beef with with databases in that I think that databases should be used to store relational data. If you don't have relational data, you should strongly consider not using a database. That is my beef with databases. Because I see many, many situations where people do not have relational data, and they're like, we have data. Where should I put this data? I'll put it in a database. And that creates a whole host of problems. So to be clear here, you're talking about also relational databases, not like the Nosquil right. style. Yes. Which, uh, you know, I think that was a Lord of the Rings thing, wasn't it? The Nosquil? Mm-hmm. Um, they yeah, were like uh-huh. the ring rates. Yep. The ring yeah. rates from one of the rings, yeah. <laughs> Completely caught you off guard. That there. is why <laughs> No sequel, sorry, for my for the listeners who aren't playing along with the stupid pronunciation thing. Uh no sequel databases, which are much more like just data dumps mm-hmm. um with no with no relational component or not with with only you know, right. complicated layering to get Document You're talking about traditional RDBMS a, yes. things. Yes. And your observation is that some data that is non relational ends up in a database. Because it's convenient, probably. Yes. Or it's just there. It's familiar, I think, is a lot of what it comes down to, right? Right. People, they know how to configure them. They know how to use them. They know how to interact with them. They're comfortable with SQL. You know, they have operational teams that can support them. There are lots of vendors that'll give you one. You know, you've been using Postgres for 10 years, and it's, like, super comfy. It's like a warm blanket, right? Right. Um, What's wrong with that? Well, the problem is, I mean, it gets back to the old programmer adage of use the right tool for the right job, right? And just because a tool is familiar doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Now, I'm going to have a a slightly hard time blaming anyone for using, you know, we had this phrase at Prevco, uh, we said boring is awesome. And, Mm -hmm. you know, using boring technologies, old technologies that work really well and are well-trodden and have all the bugs sort of wrung out of them already. I'm going to have a really hard time complaining that somebody is using one of those to solve a problem because it's like, yeah, okay, you want to actually get this thing working and you don't want to be a technology fetishist and just use the newest, coolest, no sequel thing or whatever. Sure. Fine. Respect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there are lots of times when you could get even more boring than a relational database and put it in, oh, I don't know, a file? <laughs> I was going to say, what could be more boring than a database? Yes. And you're telling me a file? Yes. So Just, what is this boring axis that you're referring to? What, <laughs> what is boring a proxy for in this particular instance? 
Well, what are you getting from from? Yeah, these what things? are we getting from boring? Well, the first thing we're getting from boring is that there's a large community. The product, the 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 tool that you're using has been used in a lot of different contexts. It had a, has very nice documentation. Has a large community around it that can help you use it. Um, a lot of the bugs have been worked out of it. It's been used in like you know production environments in a lot of different ways, and it's just a generally reliable tool. And, and so that's like Postgres. Yeah. Definitely ticks the box of boring in that respect because mm-hmm. it just works. Mm-hmm. Everyone understands that you can advertise for a job and say, hey, if you've got Postgres experience, someone can come in and you know roughly where you stand with, with, with that. Yep. yep. But you're saying that even more, like before there was Postgres, right. before there was any database, there was a file. Yeah. You, file systems. File systems are real boring. They, right. they're put, even more boring than databases. You put You put file systems on your resume and people are going to go like, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's super boring. But turns out if you don't have relational data, files are a great way to store data. You can write right. them to the file system and read them, right? It's So give really me an cool. example of the kind of data you're thinking about when you're very mm-hmm. specifically saying like non-relational data. Give me an example because I'm I'm mm-hmm. I want to just sort of get yeah. Well, anything binary, first of all. Right. Whenever I see pe- people putting like JPEGs as binary blobs into a database, I'm thinking like, okay, like I get that you have a data storage device of some kind and you want to put the stuff in there. Um, but, you know, is that really the best place to put it? Now, again, if you have other relational data around it, you know, you have relational data that Maybe. needs to refer Maybe you know. You maybe put, it's your avatar in your yeah, forum system, and everything you know. else is relational. You just don't have the ping stored in there. But right, it's right. not like you can do select ping underscore decode of mm-hmm. blah in your and like actually do something with it. The data it's just it's a. But I mean, that's why databases have blobs. After all, that mm-hmm. is what these are meant for, right? But you're saying that like if that's all you're doing, yeah, maybe you need to think carefully. Yeah. If if primarily what you're doing is storing images. You really need a relational database to store your images. I think probably you don't. Um, and there are also other reasons why, you know, it's it's obviously important to think about the context and things are going to be used. Scalability is a big concern in a lot of different contexts. Right. You can get scalability through relational databases, but if you're using the relational database simply as a mechanism for scalability, what about an object store, Right. You don't necessarily need to use files or you can't use files because it's like, okay, well, this has to run on multiple computers. They can't all share right, the same file system without some NFS trickery that we don't want to do. Yes, S3 type yeah, stuff. Or, yes. Yeah. What about a file store? Again, you're not using, you don't have relations in your data. Don't use a relational database. Use something simpler. So, you know, there's stuff like that. So, like, like for example, if you're building internal tools, right, some internal website, something like that, the number of people that will ever use this tool in its entire lifetime is like two dozen, right? Right. <laughs> Do you really need to run that on more than anything but like a single server or a virtual machine or something where, you know, you can just write files and read files and back those files up and it'll be fine? I don't think that you do. And if you can do that, then you get a whole bunch of other stuff for free. We had talked on an earlier episode about the importance of manual testing, being able to run things Mm -hmm. locally and do what the users do exactly on your local development workstation 
and be able to reproduce the steps that they take and troubleshoot things in the same way that they will. And I, I think that's extremely important. So important, in fact, that I would be reluctant to add any technology to a project that hindered me in that effort. One of those things can be a relational database. If you have right. to have a database loaded with all the data, with all the right schemas, loaded up on your machine, then you can't have a lot of automation around creating well, it's that. Harder. It's harder. It's, it's harder to get. It's harder. Right. You're right. It's, it's not a barrier to doing it. It's not impossible. And like virtualization technology yes. and other things have come along to make it a bit easier, but it's it's not straightforward compared to here's a file. But the question is, will you? Yeah, right. <laughs> can you and will you are two different. Yes, I can make a Docker container for my uh, database and I can write all the scripts and tools to load all the things into it and I can integrate that in with all my projects so that when I fire up the server or whatever it is, it also fires up the database and it tears it down properly so I'm not leaking Docker containers and my laptop crashed. Well, you had all 35 things, instances right. of Postgres running. That's why it crashed. Right. All those yeah. things. You can solve all of those problems and take the time to solve all those problems. A lot of people don't. They just say, "Well, I'll just run the database myself," and then they and then or everyone points at the dev database, right, which you just right, assume right. runs somewhere because and, they don't want to take like, the oh, time. is someone else using dev right now? Because I'm running my tests against it. Oh, sorry, I'm uh -huh. yeah, you know that's yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what people generally do because they don't want to take the time to automate it. But I think that there's an even better option there, which is why do we need a database for this thing, right? So. You mentioned files. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember that at, at Prev, Prevco, the sort of internal link shortener that was hacked together used exclusively a file-based, an append-only text file to store, you know, a space separated. Here's the short URL. Here's the long URL. And it just loaded it into memory every time it's, it, you know, it started back up again. Mm -hmm. And there you are. That's the simple enough thing if it fits into memory. And that's, that's a perfect, I think, example of what you're talking about. There's no relation on that aspect to this whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It can all live in memory. And so it was implemented as a JavaScript like map literally from the short URL to the long URL. And it was, yeah, as I say, a text file. But what if your data is bigger than that or needs to be indexed more than that? You get an awful lot for free with something like a SQL database. Like, hey, um, I need to look up by this field or this other field. And now I can write the code to do that. But it's kind of easier if I just let the database manage that bit. And I yeah. can create two indices now, right? I mean, if you're looking things up by various fields, that sort of smells a little bit like relational data to me. In which case, I would say... Not necessarily. Like, like for it, you know, take my URL shortener, for example. Mm -hmm. What if I wanted to say, okay, well, um, what are the short URLs that lead to this big URL? Like, essentially yeah. an inverted index, right? Right. Um, I could obviously I can write the code just to have two in you know two maps one that goes from short to long and one that goes from long to short but I'm I'm basically making a database and if anyone needs anything more like hey what about you know it has a user field in it as well right and that could be who created it and I said sure. well find all the ones created by me now that you were definitely straying into relational yeah uh, areas but I mean here. the other so aspect here is that if you're making a URL shortener for an internal application then the lifetime of this application is going to have megabytes of data at the most, which means yeah, you can do just about anything that you want, right? I'm, I'm sort of just making the point that yeah. like, if you start down a road where you end up writing all of these things, and then one day you're like, oh, no, it doesn't fit in memory. Well, this is annoying. How are we going to make it scale? How are we going to... And If you know, one day uh, it's never going to fit in memory, okay, sure. Of course. But there are certain categories of things where you can be like, 
the number of short URLs at this company. Well, you say that. <laughs> we actually did hit this problem, which is why I kind of bring this up. There was a, a API server could generate the short URLs, which meant that you could very quickly churn through and create thousands of them, which was fine until it then took, you know, days for the machine to restart because it had to read through terabytes mm. of this text file but it was you know again wasn't a big problem and yeah, I, I, okay. you know, adding layers in your software could mean you could switch it out later on and put something else there right but i'm just saying it's it's i mean it's a hell of a lot easier to go from a set of flat files to a database than it is to go the other way correct correct but like the api that a database gives you is one that mm. is sort of um, sort and search and find and reorder and limit and sure. all these things which you might not sure. need it in a relational data store but you you know you still want to be able to do those things you know aggregate like stuff um, and you end up writing that yourself the file doesn't give you that so the database is both the storage mechanism and the querying right mechanism for that data whereas if it's a file it's just a storage mechanism and then right. you, it's up to you to kind of layer everything else which is probably a feature but I just want to sort of yeah. talk about that. I mean, that. certainly if you find yourself building your own indexing system into flat files, you're probably it's probably time to move on to something else, right? But n- maybe not a relational database is perhaps. Maybe not a relational database. And one of the places where I definitely see people abusing relational databases is with messaging-based systems, right? Oh, my. With a, a message or an event-based system, people using the database as a, as a terrible message queue where they're writing oh. things in and reading things back out and trying to time those things select all properly. Select star from this where ID is greater than or equal to yes. the last ID I got from you. Exactly. And keep <laughs> retrying. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, Did I get it. any new rows in this table? Did I get any new rows in this table? And that is that is a huge dysfunction, right? That sounds – yeah, that's definitely somebody running around with, with a hammer thinking that everything else is a nail at that point. You're like, well, I got my database. What else can I do with it? You're right. Like, ah. And 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 the thing is, is that quite often systems devolve into – or evolve? Evolve into sort of more event-based systems because people want things faster. They want them in real time. They want right. them to update automatically, right? Like, I want my web page to update automatically. I want my report to update automatically. And so, like, they sort of evolve into these systems over time and – they don't people don't stop and sort of reevaluate and be like, all right, well, while we have like, you know, gigabytes of data and not terabytes or petabytes of data, maybe now should be the time where we take the leap to go from something that is relational to something that is more event based. Um, right. And there are lots of tools for that. One of the things that I will say is that I personally think it is generally easier to create the sort of like in-memory slash stub slash fake implementations of most message systems than it is to reproduce all of SQL. Right. And you alluded earlier to SQLite, which is possibly the one exception to this, right? And it's a great tool and you should use it if you if you find yourselves in these situations. But generally, if you've got N consumers and M producers and you just want to tie them together, like you can do that in memory for a single node to test locally pretty easily right so you can have your yeah. your real producer consumer that talks to you know kafka or rabbit mq or zero mq or you know your message bus of choice whatever um and you can have a, an alternate implementation of that that is not talking to any of those services just runs entirely in memory and as soon as it receives a message it sends it all to the producers because they're all in the same process and that makes it really easy to run things locally and test locally in a pretty realistic way. Like, obviously, you're not yeah. going to be able to, like, tease out all the weird things about your messaging system by doing that. But, you know, you can do most things. Um, 
And so that that sort of particular dysfunction, I think, is a is a bad one when people don't sort of take a beat to just say like maybe we should switch. The the thing you just said there about the sequel is an interesting one though because whenever I have used uh, sequel, um, and usually it's with something like SQLite that I'm actually using a file somewhere because for for some of the reasons that you said you know like I don't need a server or stuff, mm-hmm. um, but the I end up having to wrap all of my uh, objects um, interactions with the database in a very high-level abstract mm-hmm. API so that I can test them because there's no way in heck I'm going to test the SQL query itself. Or maybe I am, but there's only so much you can do and be sure that you've done the right thing there. So, right. so you know, and then you're, or, or, you know, and I guess there's the, the, the traditional solution to this is to have an ORM, which then maps your objects into a database and you kind of assume the ORM right. just works. And then you test the objects or the, 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 the ORM mapped objects and the interactions with those and just assume. But yeah, having having to sort of stub out something that looks like SQL doesn't sound very testable. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just you, you wind up with the sort of mock magic approach where it's like, okay, and maybe you do the thing where you, um, you know, you do uh, make it till you fake it, right? So you like run right. it against the real database and you make sure that it really works and then you stub out the parts that were interacting with the real database using the the data that you the got back that you got yeah, back right. yeah right like, basically it's like you know write your test and don't mock anything out connect to the real database paste. and then copy paste <laughs> and then edit you know shrink it down you know all that good stuff you can do those yeah. techniques and that's fine it's like a kind of a brittle test a brittle's not I was the gonna right say. One. i mean it's it's a reliable test in that it will be give you the same behavior every single time. You're not going to get any weird effects where it's like, I ran it and it failed, and I ran it and it passed. It's like, no, you're getting the opposite of that with that approach, which is good. But if you ever change your mind about what you want that sequel to be, you have to go through the whole process again of basically taking yeah. the mocking out and then redoing it and putting it back in, right? It, it's a bit more like um, the thing we discussed with Claire with the sort of like golden right. test, yes. the, the acceptance testing, except there isn't an obvious place to put a, an automated system such as the uh, the test that she was talking about yeah. there because you have to talk to the da- database and then you do this manual process of like mm-hmm. getting rid of the the wheat in the, cha- the from the chaff and mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah you yes yeah, so we talked about SQLite but although I, I sort of glo- glossed over that a little bit but SQLite is an, in an intermediate kind of form because it has yeah. some benefits it certainly doesn't have the drawbacks of needing a central database server with mm-hmm. all the dockery thing or the dev instance or whatever it can be just a, it, it is just a local file on disk um so what do you what are your feelings about that i think i think that's a really good intermediate thing there was a project that i worked on oh god when was that i want to say it was like 10 years ago but i don't even remember but basically we had made the conscious choice to stick to like very generic you know ansi sequel basically to say, we are going to be able to work with any database, not just Postgres, not just something else, basically only for testing, right? So that we could run against SQLite and you could bring the whole system up with SQLite and be very confident that when you moved over to Postgres or MySQL or whatever we were using for production, we were using Postgres in production. But it would just it work. It would just work, right? And obviously, you know, there are cases where you can find different data vendors interpret things in different ways around the problems, but for the most part... That was a pretty good solution, and I honestly I, I feel like this was a while enough ago. I don't know if if that's a realistic solution anymore. Honestly, um, I feel like there might be people that are like, yeah, if you're going to use Postgres, there's no way you can write standard SQL and have it 
actually get the value of Postgres that you want. Like, okay, maybe that's, that's what true. I was going to say. The value there, you know, like as soon as you start down the road of like stored procedures mm-hmm. to update things, and which of course you typically would only do if you're starting to take the benefit of like maybe some of the more relational things in the database because you have to atomically update three tables or something like that. In which case right. you kind of maybe we're, we've moved out of the part that you were talking about where you're like misusing relational databases right. to store non-relational information. Well, that's like, no, that's a valid use of a database. If it's a database like RDMS, Stuff, fine, go, knock yourself out. But is it just a, a file store of JPEGs uh, or, you know, URL shortener? Even yeah. a URL shortener thing is, is on more on the fence, but yeah. Um, is is there um, is this top of mind because of things that you're thinking about at the moment or is this just something that came to you? I mean, it's it sort of touches on something that I think we were going to maybe talk about it in a different podcast, but maybe this will be the blend of these two things, um, which is like the project make file. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where like I personally think that um, – oh, who said this? This is probably not – I'm just going to attribute everything on this podcast that I can't remember who said it to Michael Feathers, and then I'll be like right 60% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> I've, gotten, yeah. I've gotten a lot of wisdom in my career from Mr. Feathers. He's a wonderful person. Um, but he said, uh, you know, code is a way you treat your coworkers. Yes. I think that was him. It, yes. it probably is him. Um, and one of those aspects, I think, is if you want to bring people onto a project, right? You want people to help you fundamentally. You have to help them help you, right? You have to do oh things gosh. for them to make it easy for them to contribute. You can't just push it all on them and be like, well, if you're a real programmer, you would just read through all these things and figure out how it works and, or, you know, read my partially up-to-date documentation that I wrote three years ago or whatever it is. Right. You have to create an environment that is welcoming and friendly and easy to use. Otherwise... They're either not going to work on it or they're going to be forced to work on it and they're going to hate you, right? Or they're going to hate the code. <laughs> they probably won't hate you, right. but they'll just not you, they'll be like, yeah, they might they will grumble. They might grumble about you a little bit, but they'll mostly they'll just hate the code, right? They'll hate the thing that they're doing, which is not good. It's just like not filling up the coffee machine or leaving your smelly lunch in the fridge. This is a bad thing that you can do to your coworkers and you should not do this. And so one of the aspects of this, I think, is you should be able to check out a repository and run a simple command and do all the things that we have talked about on these podcasts over many times. You should be able to run it locally and manually test it. You should be able to run the tests and verify that they pass. You should be able to deploy it. You should be able to build an artifact that is deployable. You should be able to do all of these things. And there's not that many. It's like maybe half a dozen, right? It's like run the system, run the tests, build a deployable artifact, Deploy the artifact, right? If you can do those things, then you can do most things that software engineers need to do. And you should automate all of those things. How do you automate all those things? That's another question. The way that I've been doing it in recent years is by using Make. Because Make is a tool that is good at resolving dependent tasks, sometimes in parallel. And it's ubiquitous, like basically any mm-hmm. Linux environment that you're going to be in is going to have Make. And yeah, Make files aren't the easiest thing in the world to write, but they're actually not crazy hard to read. Like if you've already got one and you sort of understand how targets work, they're not crazy hard to read. And you, if you're working in a compiled language, you might want to use Make or CMake, but you might want to use Make to do some stuff anyway. Both. So you probably yeah, have them no, all there right. anyway. So... It's not bad. Now, can you do this with shell scripts? Absolutely, you can. I have. It works great. 
Can you do it with other tools? Sure. Yep. Again, b- applying boring is awesome. I would go for a more boring tool here because there are definitely some boring solutions. But that is a thing that I think is important. So to answer your question of why is this top of mind for me, it's because I've had a few projects recently that have had data that was marginally relational and certainly not very big that depended on a relational database that was like... Got it. I figured there was a wound here. <laughs> oh, and, and the instructions are in the readme are like, install Postgres, yeah. load these schema, you know, create these tables by loading the schema in, and then configure the Postgres URL to this, and then you can start the system And up. you're like, no, make. I want to do make yeah. test. And if it needs Postgres, then fine. It may be even, it can bring, yes. uh, you know, Docker, whatever, something, or uh, any podman. Uh, data, but there should be no manual steps in this. That's the critical bit. Exactly. Any time that the yeah, I I think you know. Well, you and I agree on this very very strongly, right? Every every project that I've worked on, and I've had so much positive feedback from people that are saying like, I can't, be- I love it when it's your project because I just do Git clan- clone and then I type make and the compiler itself even gets installed on my computer and just works. I'm like, yes, that's that's how it should be. If I need a magical version of GCC because I need this particular flag, then I will arrange for that to be on your computer as a result of typing make, as opposed to here's a list of sudo apt get install crap that you have to do mm-hmm. first. Like mm-hmm. that's not, a, that that should not ever um, be, be uh, allowed. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a variety of, uh, of open source projects that I've worked on that will have a similar thing. And it, I think it's a big bit. And in fact, actually, I have, someone raised a bug recently because it's one of the things that stopped working. But mostly I can point people at, say, Compiler Explorer and say, yeah, you know how you get it running locally? Make. And it'll churn away for a bit. And then you go to port 10240 and then you've got your own local install of it. And it's like, people are like, oh, I was expecting there to be more. I'm like, no, it's just that because that's all you need. Again, it's broken right now, mm-hmm. apparently. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, working on it's, it. Um, it's. I think it's a valuable um, and important thing. It's it just a, a. And as an API, make you can go far worse than the make, as you say. I mean, npm is sort of does it for the JavaScript community at some point, and as you know, mm-hmm. mavens and things and whatever. But you know, make can run those. Yeah. I'm, I usually have a yeah. make file at the top of my project that maybe even runs CMake that then runs Ninja. For all you know, mm-hmm. but you know, you don't have to know that if you're just saying no, make the project. I don't care. It's like, well, there's layers and layers of things going on. You don't need to know about it. Hey, Conan's being installed in a virtual Python virtual env in your machine, and we're installing all the dependencies through Conan, right? But again, you don't need to know that. You, it just right. works right. for you, and it's all done through right. the magic of Make. Yep, and that serves two really important purposes. Actually, one is that it is this sort of like you know, code is a way you treat your coworkers thing. Um, but the other thing is, is that it is an absolutely correct form of documentation, <laughs> right? Like, how do you configure and build and deploy the system? Well, it's all here. I'm 100% sure it's correct because we use it every day, all day. It's how my CI runs. It's how my deploys run. Exactly. It's how I run exactly. locally. Yeah. Right. So not only can you can you read that to figure out how it all works. Right. But you can confidently change it and know like, oh, if I make this change here, everyone's going to do it like this with this version of the code. There's no like separate like, oh, well, there's the build, but then there's the code and you have to keep them in sync. And if you roll back one, you got to roll back the other. It's all together. It's all in one place and it all works. And so there's huge value sort of documentation and, and coordination value in automating those things. And this is, I mean, to me, it's sort of one of those things you just have to choose 
to do, mm-hmm. right? Like we've kind of talked before about like you, you know, we're wizards, we can do anything. <laughs> what what you choose to do in the sea of all possible things is going to determine a lot about what your working environment is like and what you're able to do and what you're not able to do. I don't think anyone. I don't think any of our listener listening to this podcast right now. I'm, I'm reliably informed that we have at least two. Actually, now I was two. talking to somebody. Both list- I, I would say, uh, <laughs> other than our respective spouses, who are <laughs> right. So both of our listeners would agree. I think that any of these things that we've talked about on this podcast are possible to do. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a question of should you do them, and I think that you kind of just have to start with the decision of like, yes, I'm going to automate this stuff entirely so that you can just write type make. And yes, that might lead me, lead me down some strange paths where I'm, you know, building tools to make sure that it is possible to do this. But if you make the decision to do it, then everything sort of will follow on from that. If you're committed to it. Just like we said as, uh, earlier as well as, you know, if you start, if you can start from the beginning, in that yes. way, it's harder than sorry. It's easier than retrofitting it later. So if you're like, well, every it's just always been the case. You type making it gets everything, and we started mm-hmm. with just hello world, and you know we've got the compiler and we got the the thing building, and then we oh, we added a dependency on a third party library. Okay, well, we're going to make sure that that comes down as part yep. of the make file, yep. and you sort of in- incrementally put it on rather than, than having it um, uh, trying to sort of retrofit it. Yeah, yep. I, it's it's easier to do those kinds of things. But again, I think you're right. It's an effort of will on your own part that you have to make that decision. This is going to be mm-hmm. worth it. I'm going to take mm-hmm. uh, a hit early on. And I mean, once you've done it a few times, it's not even a hit. It's just a way of life, right? It's sort of the right, Zen, the right. Tao of, yes. of a new project is, you go, you know, new directory. The very first thing I do is VI make file. And I'll paste in, uh, worth saying, there's a, a really nice little pattern that we've um, we've picked up along the way. And both of them, well, I've picked up from you, but I think you picked up from, from Jake McCreary, who picked up from someone else, of having like a help target that sort of grips itself out of yeah, the make file. Yeah. And mm-hmm. thus, with a bit of like uh, orc and said and magical things, kind of makes an auto help page for your make file and so you, yeah. know, you can just it maybe your default target is that as well so if you type make it just says hey these are the things you can do and you're like that's great yeah um but yeah so that's what i'll, I'll paste that snippet in <laughs> into my make mm-hmm. file and then i'll like just have a make echo target that just says hello world and then you know start from there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that help file thing i think is is nice like you know it just sort of gives you that sort of half dozen here are the things you can do as a developer and you sort of gets people started the other thing about this it is not only is this a something that, you know, if you started early, you know, so you get that momentum going, it's easier. If you started early, there's actually lots of situations where you can, you know, tap into the power of laziness in order to <laughs> get people to do the right thing, which is – and a great example of this, I think, is continuous deployment. So, if on day one, you, you know – Follow my advice and say the first thing you do is deploy, right? So the f- deploy your hello world that does basically nothing and have it automatically deploy whenever you push to the main branch, then it will be difficult to not have production in sync with the main branch because it's going to do that automatically right. whenever you deploy. Yep. And people will just orient their behaviors around that from the start. They'll be like, well, if we push to the main branch, it's going to deploy. So how do we make sure that that doesn't break? Well, I know I'll write a test or I know I'll do this other thing or right. whatever, right? There's, you've got smart people. They'll figure it out. But if you, <laughs> if you start with that philosophy, it actually becomes the easy thing to do to do it right. 
as opposed to this extra step that you have to take. Yeah. Um, but you have to start there or you have to very quickly get there. Um, because if you go in later, it was like, well, we're going to, we're going to deploy to production every time you push to the main branch. You'll get a suddenly... hundred very valid reasons why that's a bad idea. Right? right. And you should not do that. And that's actually an interesting, you, you said, I, you reminded me of, um, uh, a couple of issues I've seen in, in the last couple of weeks, which have both come down to not projects, not auto pushing on their latest version. And then later on, somebody act accidentally or you know as a side effect pushing right. of newer version of the project and breaking other things because uh it was like a a relatively significant number of changes that got rolled out to a system and you're like no if you if if it's pushed every time you push then we'd find out a lot earlier and it would be causally linked with the thing that you had just done as opposed to but i just did this thing how on earth can that affect this other thing oh i picked up two weeks worth of changes in one go ah mm-hmm it's shocking how much, and I mean, if you if you talk to anybody that was into like lean systems and the lean stuff, like you know, ten years ago or whatever, they'll tell you this, obviously. But it's like, there's it's it's shocking how much queuing theory there is in software software development, management, and process and stuff, right? Oh. Like if you if you understand queuing theory really well, you can start to see those things in how developers push out changes, right? And and you know, the whole Toyota production system and all that sort of fed into all this stuff. This was this is what the cool kids were talking about like oh, ten years ago, really. I'm I'm not um, one of those. The, the post the post agile people. Uh oh. the agile some of the agile refugees that were like, you know, <laughs> why are we all talking about stand ups and cards and things? I just wanna build stuff. Um But yeah, like like queuing up changes. Right? Like a, a perfect example of this is is exactly what you're talking about is the longer you queue up changes, the more uh, the more cost there is to actually deploying those changes, and that happens in multiple dimensions. One is is that you've lost context, right? Mm-hmm. Like the people who made the changes uh, just have slept since then, and they just don't have the sort of top of mind uh, knowledge that they would have had if it was like, all right, I just built this thing and now I'm going to deploy this thing. Hey, it broke. That's probably the thing that I just changed. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly, exactly what's going on. And it's all the, the cache is all still warm, right? Like it's all, <laughs> it's all up there. Um, the other thing is that you, you can, uh, unfortunately sometimes, uh, defer those bugs for your coworkers, which, you know, not only have they slept since then, they're not you, which means they don't know anything about this which change is what happens going out. To me, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that, can increase the cost. And the other thing is, is that you get errors on top of errors, right? So somebody checks in a change that breaks something. Somebody goes and makes another change and they look at your code and they go, okay, well, apparently that's how it works now. I'll do that. And they're doing something wrong. And then they oh. make two of those things that are wrong. And that just sort of compounds on top of each other until the thing finally hits the real world. And then that whole chain of things breaks because we were building wrong on top of wrong this whole time and you never knew it. Um, so those, are, I mean, those are just some sort of basic ways, but it's like this, this, this general problem of if you're queuing up changes to your system, you're taking on a lot of risk and you got to be really careful that that risk is actually worth it. Sometimes it is, sometimes right. you can't just do things where it's like, yeah, literally every change just goes right to prod. You know, there are, there are situations where that can't happen. Lots of situations where that can't right, happen. Right. But, but understanding Minimizing that your goal it. should right. always be to shrink it, Right. And to, and to also just like recognize like if you can't do this, well, here are some of the problems that you're going to encounter. You're going to encounter the problem like you saw today. Okay. How do we deal with that problem when it happens? Um, 
one of the things that I have advocated for a long time is that git revert is not a personal insult. Um, reverting commits is something that you should take advantage of, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not, you're not, you will have a much more complicated operational process if you have this mentality of everything that everyone has ever committed to this repository must be either fixed or remain pristine or never get rolled back. Like your life will be made so much easier if you just sort of have a meeting where we all come together and be like, all right. Everyone in this room are all going to agree, if I revert your commit, it's because I love you. And I want you to be able to go on vacation and not have to worry that the code that you've committed to the repository is perfect and unassailable in all ways. You can leave the building and go home to your family and loved ones. And if I see that you've made a mistake, as we all do, I'm just going to revert it. And I'm going to tell you so that when you come in the next day, be like, yep, Ben reverted my commit. Thank you for reverting my commit. That means I can fix this now at my own leisure and not have to be woken up at two o'clock in the morning by pages or interrupted by dinner saying, hey, Ben, you committed a bunch of bad code and then you left the building and now we need you to fix it right now. It's like, well, I, can't you just, I love this. Can't you just revert it? I think this is a brilliant <laughs> analogy. Yeah, because there is, you're, you're right. I mean, isn't it a funny social issue that, yeah, I do feel guilty reverting someone else's change. It's like, you know, uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, a bad reflection on them when it's like, no, it is a pragmatic thing that I'm doing to buy us back the stability that we had before. And unless their mm -hmm. change was required for operational reasons, then often, as you say, it's right, like, well, right, right. okay, you can come back in tomorrow and you can revert the revert and then you can fix whatever issue it was. And then you can, yeah, no harm, no harm done. And, and I'd like to think that if someone reverted one of my changes, I wouldn't feel put upon, but, Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, 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 I, I, yeah, I, I do like the, if I revert your changes because I love you and I want you to have a lovely evening without me <laughs> right. you or a vacation or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I want you to be happy. I want you to be uninterrupted in your life and I'm just going to revert your change and then we'll talk about it tomorrow. Right. Or whatever. Right. After lunch, whatever it might be. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of these things of like, I feel like if you can adapt some of these things. We've talked before on this on this podcast about like you know the reason that I I got so into interested in engineering practices agile engineering practices in particular is because I sort of realized it's like if there's certain things that you do and you do them well there's a whole host of other things that you don't need to do right and I feel like this is an example of that where it's like if you get comfortable with this as a team as a as an organization where it's like yeah when we commit it goes right to master it goes to, or it goes to the main branch goes to the main branch gets deployed to production. That's just how everything works. If we run into problems, we revert the commit, and then we've got a reverted commit, and then that gets deployed, and now the problem is fixed, right? If you do that, you don't have the queuing problems. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to worry that much about versioning and, like, keeping old versions. Like, you have sort of a nice thing of, like, you know, depending on the particulars of your project, not every project is going to be able to do this, but you can get into situations where it's, like, you know, Unless you find yourself very often needing to roll back and your deployment system, however it is, doesn't let you just roll back to a SHA, which some do, right? Like if you're depending on how you set it up, you can say, okay, well, everything we've ever deployed is just, you know, marked by the SHA. And if you want to roll back to a particular commit, you can roll back, you can rerun that SHA. But there's like a whole bunch of versioning things that you probably also don't have to worry that much about. Mm -hmm. Like your solutions to those can be significantly simpler because you know, you're just reverting commits instead of, you know, oh, we need to roll back to version 1.27. 
And then where is Warp version 1.27? I don't know. I stored it in an artifactory or whatever. Right, right. We right. got to fetch it from artifactory. There's just a bunch of stuff you don't have to build. So I think, and not, again, not every project is going to be able to do this. This is not a universal solution. But I think the main thing is just sort of thinking in these terms and trying to like simplify things in these ways. You'd be surprised at what clever solutions you can come up with if you just embrace the philosophy of it. Right. Got Start it. with the philosophy and be like, how do, I, how do we get as close to this as we can and work back from that? So how do we get to that from databases? I feel like somewhere along the line, I know there is a link, <laughs> but you kind of switched gears. And you're like, add another thing. <laughs> Make I files. did. I did. But I that's just, a great I, this thing. Is, but yeah, yes. so I, my, my understanding is that we got there from like, if you ha- don't have to fire up a giant database or run against a big database, then that enables you to have the kind of self-contained hermetic project where you just mm-hmm. clone the project and type make and you can run all the tests, you can do all the deployment, you can do everything within that world without having some exogenous dependency, an exogenous unnecessary dependency exactly. on a database. Exactly. Just trying right. to make sure that we've got the trail. Yeah, tie tie all these <laughs> ranty pieces together. That's a good idea. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's you know, everyone sort of agrees that simpler is better. And and all we disagree on is what, is it, what does it mean to be simpler? Some people would say, like, why are you... You know, building your, writing your own code to scan a file, to query things that you could just throw into a relational database. Isn't it simpler to just write a little bit of query instead of to write a hundred lines of code? And my argument, a lot of the time, and again, this is very context sensitive, but a lot of the time is, no, I'd rather write a hundred lines of code than have a database. Because if I have to maintain a database, then I can't do all these other things. And the other things are more valuable to me, yes. Exactly. Got it. The other things are more valuable to me than saving myself a hundred lines of code, right? I'll just write the hundred lines of code. It'll be fine. And then that means that when you clone my repository and write make run, the system comes up and you can use it just as a user would with no special stuff to have to make it work. Yeah. And when I deploy it, I know exactly how it's going to work because I don't have to coordinate the deployment of the software with the deployment of a database or write database migrations that go from one thing to the other thing, or any of that, because I have my 100 lines of code to replace all of that. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that is databases fully (laughs) covered. (laughs) (laughs) We need to come up with a better ending than that. (laughs) Maybe we could stop a bit earlier than this, and I'll just do some magic editing, because that seemed like a natural end point. Or maybe Uh, maybe we just put this into it, and then everyone can see how rubbish we are at finishing mm. things. How bad are we at endings? We are this bad at endings. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP. That's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>